couple things today, especially, is Reformation Sunday, as has been noted. It's a day when we remember that on October 31st, to the best of our knowledge, 1517, just over 500 years ago this Tuesday, Martin Luther, the German monk, posted his famous 95 theses in Latin on the main door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Becky and I had the privilege recently to be there with Phil and Cindy Fisk, and a photo of what it looks like today. The original doors are gone, and this is still the north door of Castle Church there in Wittenberg. It is now bronze, and the 95 theses are inscribed in, on Latin behind. They, um, Martin Luther put, wrote them in Latin because it was just to, to stimulate academic debate. They were very quickly, in God's providence, translated into German. And then because the printing press was a fairly new invention, they exploded all over uh, Germany and that part of Europe. And soon God used Martin Luther to launch what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Two things really came out of that. One, a call back to preach the word of God and to move the altar aside and put the pulpit back in the center. And then secondly, a call back to salvation by faith alone. And so... We use this as an opportunity to highlight that once a year, Reformation Sunday, giving thanks for what God did through this German monk 500 years ago and reminding us why preaching the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, submitting ourselves to the Word of God is so important. With that, I invite you to open to the book of Haggai in our Old Testament. We're currently in a series on the last 12 books in our English Bible called the Minor Prophets, probably a nickname from St. Augustine. Minor Prophets include the last 12 books in our English Bible, Hosea to Malachi, written in ancient Israel. They're written over a period of about 300 years, roughly 750 BC to roughly 450 BC. Subtitle of our series is God's Word in Troubled Times. And the reason we, I use that subtitle is because these 12 books offer great clarity, hope, and perspective for God's people in all ages as they navigate troubled times. The book of Haggai divides easily into two parts. There's two chapters. Chapter 1, call to rebuild the temple. We'll get into that a little bit. And then chapter 2, very encouraging section, promises from God. We need to begin with a little bit of background. Haggai is one of three minor prophets that has a different label than most of the other minor prophets. I'm going to say the label, then I'll explain it. He is one of the prophets we call post-exilic. Now, sometimes that term is thrown out in church. Most people are like, well, whatever that is. Post-exilic. What am I talking about? It has to do with when he wrote his book. That's the key. And to get the big picture here, we're going to step out of pulpit mode for a minute, put on my professor hat here. A couple things you need to know about the background that'll make this a lot more understandable because he's writing at a very different time than most of the other minor prophets. So you need to know that. So I'm going to put the date up here you see, 586. Closest thing in American terms in recent history to that for us would be 9-11. Uh, Although this was more devastating than 9-11. But in our terms, think 9-11 on steroids. 586 changed everything in Israel's history. Their past, their present, the future. I mean, this was an epic moment. 
what happened? Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. They were headquartered in what is today Iraq. They had invaded two previous occasions, 605 and then 597. And then they decided that Israel was being such a nuisance. It was time for Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful warlord on the planet, to come all the way from Iraq with several hundred thousand soldiers and determine to end Israel's existence for the most part. And so what we've been seeing with Hamas, multiply that exponentially. They came over and invaded the land and obliterated Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and then the vast majority of people weren't just taken hostage across the border. They were taken hostage as prisoners of war and taken all the way back hundreds of miles to what is today Iraq and kept for 70 years. Obviously, something like this utterly changes the DNA and the psychic of a nation. And so that sets up the stage for what is called the exile. A 70-year period after the land had been destroyed, temple had been destroyed, Men and women and children have been brutalized, terrorized, and then whoever was left, the majority taken as hostages and prisoners of war all the way to Iraq for 70 years. The prophets that wrote before that event, which are most of the minor prophets, are called pre-exilic. Obviously, the conditions they're writing in are very different than those who are writing after this whole event. So let me put up the next slide because the next, there's only one more here, will set the stage for Haggai because you need to know where he is because he's writing at a very different point in history than say Amos or Hosea or Obadiah. So Haggai is writing 520, so there's only two dates on this slide, don't freak out, 538 BC, so 586 is their 911, everything changed. Fast forward in history a little bit, a few years, in 538 Babylon is gone. Babylon's been moved off the world stage. They're gone. They've been toppled by the Persian Empire. This is how, these, you know, this is how empires go. One empire comes and gone and comes and gone. Babylonians are gone. Persian Empire is now on the scene. The exiles are still in. Uh, they were in Babylon, but now they have come back. Why? Because Cyrus the Great, the new king of the Persians, gives an edict. And he says... The Jews who still exist over in that region can now go home. Think of the joy of that event. And roughly 50,000 hostages return to Israel. We're waiting right now for just a few, a couple hundred. 50,000 return after 70 years. And one of the very first things they want to do is what? Rebuild the temple and start life again and start worshiping again in their homeland. Imagine the intensity, the emotion of going back after that length of time. And so God raises up in 520 now, Haggai, why? Because the people did go back, they started rebuilding the temple, everything starts as obedience does so often, starts with a flare, but then it stalled. And pretty soon life got back to normal, People got back to doing commerce and business and doing their own houses. And pretty soon the temple just sat there for about 16, 15, 16 years. And nothing's going on with it. And it just sits there unfinished. God raises up Haggai in 520. We know the date of Haggai very carefully. In fact, he's dated, you notice the first verse, by a Persian king. 
all the other prophets are dated usually by a king of Judah or Israel. Haggai's dated by a Persian king, King Darius. And so God raises up Haggai to go tell the people, look it, you need to finish my house. That's the message here. You're being disobedient. I've commanded this. You started it and it stalled. And so God called Haggai. So Haggai is writing after the exile. The people are already back in their land. Very different point in history than when the pre-exilic prophets are writing. You need to know that much. This will make a lot more sense if you understand that little bit of history. With that, let's dive in. Chapter 1. The book of Haggai is four messages delivered in four months. This whole book took place in four months. Four messages from God to his people. And it brings us to the first message, which I'm going to read verses 2 through verse 9. Here comes the first message from God to his people. They're all back in the land. They're going about life, and the temple sits there incomplete. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Well, it had come. They had started it. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you? This is God speaking to his people. Is it time for you to be, for you, you, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, your nice houses, while this house, meaning his temple, remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. We'll come back to that phrase shortly. That phrase, the Lord Almighty, is used almost 15 times just in Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. I hope you have a Bible or a device open in front of you. I hope you have the Word of God in front of you. Probably most of you know, when you do Bible study, you're looking for clues. Some of those clues are repetitive words, repetitive phrases. This phrase shows up several times in this book. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty, some translations, the Lord of hosts. Lord Almighty is a better translation, I think. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I've blown away. This is part of God's discipline on them for their disobedience. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty. There's our phrase again. Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Means it's unfinished. But each of you is busy with your own house, your own life, so to speak. So, we have here a reminder the people had started out in obedience like we often do, and then it stalled. And so God raises up Haggai to speak through Zerubbabel, to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of the people now, to rebuild the temple, to finish it. The problem was this. They weren't doing it. They had started to rebuild, and then the whole thing fizzled, which is a reminder for all of us, myself included, all of us. There's a word for halfway obedience. And that word is disobedience. That's what they were doing. Brings us to verses 10 and 11. Therefore, because of you, 
The heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. You'll notice the subtitle today is Haggai, a call to obedience. This is a very robust call to obedience and both the consequences of obeying but consequences of disobeying. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for, this is God speaking, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. So it's worth noting the people's, did you see the connection here? The people's disobedience has very specific consequences, discipline from the Lord. It always does. We somehow think, I have, you have, if you claim to know Christ, that we can disobey and there's not going to be any kind of serious painful consequences. And Haggai is a great reminder, thankful for it, that that's not true. Now there's a couple of very important lessons in these first 11 verses. And I just want to, these lessons just kept, as I was doing work this week on this, these kept emerging. So let me unpack these first few lessons. Number one, God expects true followers of Christ, true believers in him, to obey. In other words, he takes disobedience very seriously. Young people, hello, please hear this. All of us need to hear this. Kids, hope you have your kids and young people in the worship service. Adults, if we claim to know Christ, if you say, I am a follower of Jesus, if you say, I am born again and I know Christ as Lord, then we need to know God expects us to obey him. He has spoken clearly. He has put it in words. And he takes disobedience very seriously. That's why you see this phrase, first time it pops up, verse 7, give careful thought to your ways. As I was working on it this week, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 just kept coming to mind. Deuteronomy 28 is an entire chapter, very long chapter, Deuteronomy 28, devoted to obedience and disobedience and the blessings on obedience and the curses on disobedience. It is both a very encouraging chapter and a very chilling chapter. And hence, give thought to your ways. So Deuteronomy 28, you have 68 verses in this behemoth chapter. 14 of those verses... Deuteronomy 28, 14 of the verses spell out the blessings that come on us when we obey. And blessings is kind of a broad category. Blessings on our lives, our marriage, our family, our peace of mind, our, you know, our labors, whatever. But the blessings that come on us, there's 14 verses. There are 54 verses in Deuteronomy 28 that talk about the curses of disobedience. Three times the length. And the message is clear. Obedience brings protection, blessing, joy, peace, assurance. I mean, you, you, you see it there. And then you have these last 54 verses that talk about what disobedience brings. And friends, it is some of the most chilling language you can read about disobedience. I didn't write it. God did. But he says... 
if you claim to know me and you persist in disobedience, you will encounter grief, confusion, loss, defeat, misery, obstacles. Life will become painful until you wake up and repent. That's the first lesson that clearly is coming through Haggai and is called to obedience. Second lesson that I see in these opening verses, very clearly, is that one of the ways the Lord disciplines is by withholding blessings on the lives of his people. So look down there again at those first 11 verses. Sometimes he sends disruptions or misfortune or adversity or just withholds blessings. So in Haggai 1, he withholds rain and he takes away their harvest and he makes sure you know he did this. These weren't just unfortunate weather patterns. This wasn't climate change. This was God saying, because you have disobeyed, I am withholding rain and I'm taking away your harvest. And then in chapter two, he ramps it up more. And it says there that the Lord actually sent blight, mildew, and hail because of their disobedience. So when we disobey, don't ever think, oh yeah, okay, if I disobey, God will do this or this or that. You never, we never know exactly how God's going to respond, especially the more persistent our disobedience becomes. And it's amazing how the ability we have to dig in our heels and become more disobedient in some kind of insane scenario that it's, things are going to get better when they don't. Second lesson. Third lesson, all over the book of Haggai, but especially in these opening verses, is that God clearly wants you to know he is sovereign, all-powerful, and in control of everything. I told you this phrase, the Lord Almighty, phrase used almost 14 times, about 14 times in Haggai. Use nine, that same phrase, 90 times in the post-exilic books. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, that phrase, Lord Almighty, is used almost 90 times in those last three books. Lord Sabaoth in Hebrew. You sang it this morning, if you were singing, the, from Martin Luther, the song. Lord Sabaoth is name, mighty fortress. What is it? Well, it's a name signifying power. Some translations translate it, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. It's a word, uh, Sabah, Sabah in Hebrew is a word so originally associated with warfare or armies or war. The word came to indicate more power. And so Lord Sabaoth or Lord Almighty is a good translation of it in the NIV is in a phrase highlighting that God is in total sovereign control of all details, right down to when mildew comes and blight comes and hail comes and crops are failing. And God says, I run the show. And so here you have a book that exalts the providence of God, which is a great comfort. I was talking to somebody recently, and he said, you know, the more you study providence, the more encouraging it is to the people of God. And I said, that's exactly right. That's how it's designed by God to be a great encouragement to us. Next, we learn that the people change their behavior and God changes his response because of it. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, who was the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of Yahweh, their God. That's always a great day. When we stop fighting God and obey the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him 
and the people feared the Lord. Sometimes we just need somebody to speak truth and God opens our heart and we get it and we realize we've been very foolish and sinful. And the people feared the Lord. You'll notice the direct connection here in one verse between obeying and fearing God. You notice that connection there. And then if you go down to 14, the last part of verse 14, we see what they did. They obeyed. That's connected to fearing the Lord. Last phrase there in verse 12. But then in the last part of verse 14, what'd they do? They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty. There it is again, Lord Sabaoth, their God. So, they obeyed. Obedience is always connected to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, as Martin Luther said, is he called it a filial fear, uh, like a family. He associated it with a family, the way parents view, I mean, the way kids view their parents. There's this respect, a little bit of fear, honor, and love from a child to a parent, the way it should be. And Luther said that's the kind of of language the Bible is taught. I mean, that's, that's the imagery that the Bible uses language for fear of the Lord. The point is, obedience is always rooted in the fear of God. That, the connection is very common in Scripture. And you could put it this way. The fear of the Lord is actually the soil for obedience. And it becomes very clear. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 said, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And that is why verse 12, you see this link, a very common link, between the fear of the Lord and obeying God. And quite honestly, friends, just speaking pastorally, and I'm speaking all of us, myself included, a fear of the Lord is quite honestly what's missing in so many of our churches and in our own lives, the lives of those who claim to know Christ. The reality is this. It's easy to come to church in Western culture. Lots of people sit in church, take notes, listen to worship, but they're not obeying God. And their reasons are many. They don't fear God. They don't respect his authority. And in many cases, frankly, they don't know God. There's lots of reasons people go to church. There's lots of reasons people get involved in a church or get on a church staff or become a leader in a local church or or become a professional clergyman or, or sing in a choir or get very involved in a small group. But some don't know God. And they come, some people just come for inspirational goodies but not to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That is what Haggai is getting at. These people had lost the fear of God, and it resulted in disobedience. That brings us to the encouraging part of Haggai, and that's chapter 2, promises of God. In chapter 2, Haggai now delivers three more messages, which contain three different promises. These are tremendous encouragement for those who are true, genuine believers. So what are the three promises? First of all, the promise of God's presence. This is in verses 1 through 9. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 9, there's first of all a promise. When there is obedience, God said, I will dwell with that person, with those people. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. 
But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the Lord and the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you. There's a key phrase. I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. There's our phrase again, Lord Sabaoth. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. What's the last phrase? Do not fear. This is a reminder God is faithful to those who know him. His presence will never leave them permanently. Then according to verse 9, there's a direct connection between God's presence and a very important word, his peace. His peace. There's a direct connection between God's presence and his peace. Look at verse 9. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord. And in this place, so the temple represented the presence of God, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God's temple is where he dwelt with his people. And where God dwells, there is peace. Jesus said for the believer today, we are the temple of God. And in that sense, God's presence in a person's life will be marked by peace. Or you even sense it in some people's homes. You can sense it. There's, there's peace there. There's the presence of God there or not. But the presence of the Lord brings peace. And it's a very important promise here. God's presence brings peace. The second promise you see in chapter 2 is a promise of material blessing. And no, he's not a prosperity preacher. But nonetheless, he says there's going to be a removal of scarcity and he will bring abundance because of their obedience. Verses 15 to verse 19. Now give careful thought to this. There's our phrase again from this day on. Consider how things were. So he's going to say, consider how things were when you disobeyed and now see how things are now that you're obeying. We need this lesson over and over and over again. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were when one stone was laid in another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. And yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Some of us this morning need to go back and give careful thought to where we have arrived and how we have ended up disobeying where we're at. Verse 19, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. God reminds them, when you were disobedient, this is what happened. Now that you're obedient, I am choosing to bless your crops, your land, your weather patterns, etc. Very real promise that comes from him here. And then a third promise, best of all, promise of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah. 
These last couple verses, friends, are amazing. Verses 20 to 23. In this final paragraph, the Lord makes a firm and exalted promise to the governor Zerubbabel. And I say firm and exalted for a couple reasons. One, it's firm because in verse 23, three times the Lord insists this is his declaration. He's very clear. This is his declaration. This is not the word of man. This is not Haggai inventing this. This is God declaring something. And he says it three different times. I'm declaring this. So it's very firm. It's going to happen. And I say it's exalted because it speaks of Zerubbabel using expressions connecting him to Messiah. Like, I will take you. I have chosen you. My servant. Look at verses 21, 23. I'm going to read them. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Again, a reminder of God's sovereign power and providence. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. There's a reference to the exodus and what happened with Pharaoh. Horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord. So, you get the first phrase in verse 21, declares the Lord Almighty. Secondly, in the middle, declares the Lord. And I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you for the third time, declares the Lord Almighty. So God makes this incredible problem, and then it ends with this, I'm going to make you a, my signet ring. What's that? This is a promise to restore and protect David's kingly line through Zerubbabel. And what's worthy of noting here is that seven times in this last paragraph, seven times the Lord is the acting subject. The one saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. These verses remind us God is good and he is in control. And he is the one calling the shots and controlling history. And these verses are clearly fulfilled, friends, where? In the coming of Jesus. What a book. What a needed reminder for all of us about where obedience leads and how we get off the, off the rails and where disobedience leads. So bottom line, Haggai calls those who claim to know God. If you claim to know Christ, if you say Jesus is my Savior and I'm his, then it's a call to get serious about obedience. And some of us here are doing well on that. And you're a great encouragement to those around you. And some of us here this morning have taken a bad turn and things are not going very well. So before we get to our summons, I want to do something here. I want to just do a quick reminder. Why is obedience such a big deal? So if I can have your attention just for a minute, let's just do a quick recap from the Bible. Why is obedience, why are good works such a big deal? Four reasons. Number one, I'm going to do these quickly. Because good works, obedience glorifies God. It advances his name and his fame and advances his kingdom. Period. Number two. Why is obedience so important? Because obedience confirms that my salvation is genuine or your salvation is genuine. There is a growing pattern of obedience. This is what the whole book of 1 John is about. Test yourself. Here are the tests. There's a love test and then there's a faith test and then there's an obedience test. 
make sure, there's a truth to that you are saved. Paul says that. Jesus talks about it, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. There's this heightened concern to make sure you're a true disciple. Obedience confirms a growing pattern of obedience is designed to give us assurance of our salvation. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jerry Bridges in his classic, The Pursuit of Holiness. The only safe evidence, Jerry Bridges writes, that we are in Christ is a holy life. We can say anything we want. We can attend as many church services as we want. He says, the only real evidence that you know Christ is a holy life. And the Bible, again, teaches holiness and obedience doesn't save anybody. But it becomes the proof that we are saved. And over time, if it's lacking, then there becomes a great question, does that person really know Christ? Third reason is obedience is connected to some wonderful things. Joy, spiritual health, physical health, emotional stability, and peace. When we obey, those things come in our life. Those are called the blessing of God. And believers want that. And the fourth reason obedience is so important, it attracts others to the gospel. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your God. As people watch you obey, especially in difficult situations, it attracts them to the Savior. Or when they watch you disobey in difficult situations, it can push them away from the Savior. Everybody's watching you. Everybody's watching me. We watch each other very carefully. People at work watch you. People at school watch you. People in your neighborhood watch you. People in your extended family watch you. And they're watching how you respond based on your claims. Going through the hard times and the good times and the bad times. And they're seeing, how does that person respond? And when we obey, it helps draw unbelievers to the Savior. So obedience glorifies God, advances his name. Secondly, it confirms and offers assurance of our salvation. Thirdly, it's connected. Obedience is connected to joy and peace and spiritual and physical health and emotional stability. And obedience, lastly, attracts others to the gospel. All right, it leads us to our summons this morning from Haggai. Only got a couple books left in this series. But what is this short book summoning us to? Kids? Young people, adults, what is the summoning us to? Number one, and I'm going to frame these as three musts when it comes to obedience. Three musts. Number one, we must be born again, first of all, and filled with God's Spirit. Until a sinner is born again and saved and filled with God's Holy Spirit, they can't consistently obey Christ. They can obey some commands, hit and miss, but they won't have the power of God's Holy Spirit in them until a sinner repents and believes the gospel they don't have Holy Spirit power in their life. But that's the moment when they repent and believe the Holy Spirit comes and invades their life and gives them a new power and a new status. You know what the new status is? They're one with Christ. They're in union with Christ. And they are filled with God's Holy Spirit. And they finally have the desire and ability to consistently, not perfectly, but consistently to start following in obedience. That's the first must. You have to be born again. The second must... We must remember that true Christians, talking to those who you genuinely know Christ here this morning as Savior, 
We are in a terrible battle with sin. And we forget that to our detriment. Sadly, many Christians simply are naive to the war they're in. And here's the tragic result. Sin is reaping havoc in their life. Romans 8.13 uses very violent imagery. Paul says to the believer, you have to kill sin. Not cajole it. Not try to gently talk it down off the ledge. You have to kill it. And I have to remind myself. I try to do this on a regular basis. I have to remind myself the terrible consequences if I don't kill sin in my life and what is at stake. And what is at stake if I choose to give in? If you choose to give in, what is at stake if you give in to sexual sin or lust or pornography? What happens if you give in to anger, grudge holding, not tithing, not getting baptized, dishonoring and neglecting the Sabbath, bitterness? I mean, the list can go greed, gluttony. What happens when we give in to these things? And that giving in to sin may undermine my marriage my reputation, my health, my emotional health, my children, my joy, and sabotage my prayer life. I dealt with a friend years ago in our very first church who committed adultery. Been one of my elders. Stepped off the board. It was a mess. We helped, through God's help, putting the whole thing back together. The marriage survived and now it's thriving. It was a privilege to walk beside them and help come in and dive into a mess and help by God's power to put the thing all back together. But at one point I challenged him. I said, look, if this ever becomes a temptation ever again, and it will, I want you to write out all the things that have happened to you in the last several weeks, how awful it's been, the misery, the, the circumstances, the disobedience, and God's judgment and discipline on you. Put it in an envelope, write it out so that if you, the next time you're ever tempted to go this route, pull that envelope out and read what has happened over the last month in your life as a deterrent. That's the kind of radicalness we need to do when it comes to fighting, especially what we might call besetting sins. Some of us are prone, all of us are prone to certain sins that just take root and, and, and they're fierce. And if we let them take over, they reap destruction in our lives. That's what's at stake when we obey or disobey the blessing of God in our lives. And it's not a small thing. Third and final must. If we're going to fight in the power of the Spirit, we have to fight with the right tools. We have to fight the battle for holiness and the Spirit's power. See, the Bible reminds you Christians, in their fight for holiness, they're not on their own. This is not just a, the Bible's advice is not roll up your sleeves and try harder. That's moralism, and that ends in failure, in discouragement. In their fight for holiness, Christians have to remember they have a new status. And that new status is in Christ. And they have a new power of the Holy Spirit. And they have new weapons. They have a book of truth. They have prayer and they have community around them. Not rocket science. Same stuff that God's saints have used all through history. And that new power of the Holy Spirit is indispensable for killing sin. Or it isn't going to happen. And for fighting for joy and for living in blessing. I'm going to close with a quote from one of my favorite dudes, my favorite heroes, John Owen. And John Owen did not have an easy life. He outlived his wife and all 11 of his children. And he was a gifted man. He was an academic at Cambridge back in the 1600s. And he wrote prolifically. But listen to this. In his classic, The Mortification of Sin, which is one of his shorter books, but very potent. I've read it a couple times. 
the mortification of sin. Quote, to, to true believers, this is how we have to approach sin. We need to continually attack our sin daily with the spiritual weapons that will kill it. Notice daily with spiritual weapons that will kill it. This is the key to warfare. Even when we, I love the last, even when we think a sin is dead, simply because it's been quiet for a while, we must labor to give it new wounds and new blows every day. We must swing the axe at the root. Close quote. There is a call to violence in the Bible. And the violence is getting violent with sin and killing it at its root. Friends, that is the message of Haggai. That is how to kill sin and find and live in blessing. And that is the message of Haggai. And that's why it is so powerful and so relevant for us. Father, we are grateful for these 12 books and especially this small book, Haggai. Thank you for its call to obedience and reminders, even in that short book, if you disobey, it's going to be painful. And when you do obey, I want to bless you. So I pray for those here this morning who don't know Christ, that today might be the day that they are truly saved and born again. And cry out to Christ for Savior and Savior and repent and believe. I pray for those here today, Father, who are walking in obedience and doing well, that you would encourage them. Put wind behind their back. Father, I know many here are doing well and walking in obedience, and it's a joy to watch them. And I also know, Father, here this morning, young and old alike, we have some stuck in sin and rebellion who claim to know you. And I pray for them that you would, in mercy, deliver them and lead them back to repentance and joy and peace. Thank you for what you're doing in our church, in our youth group, in our kids' ministry. Father, we see your hand at work here, and all we can say is praise be to you. We say this in thanksgiving and, and expectation. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.